You're listening to audio from Redeemer Anglican Church in the urban heart of Richmond, Virginia. We are a parish committed to gospel formation for missional presence through seven essential practices. Telling the biblical story, embracing a new identity in Jesus, finding belonging in the church community, cultivating virtue through redemptive habits, understanding our context in this current cultural moment, laboring in renewed vocations for the common good, and reordering our imaginations through beauty in the arts. To learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. Our first passage is in Hosea, chapters 5, verse 15, through chapter 6, verse 6. You can find that on page 754 of your pew Bible. And as we love to say every week, if you don't have a Bible of your own at home, please take one with you after the service. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. Come, let us return to the Lord for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. And on the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. The word of the Lord. Our gospel reading today is from Matthew chapter 9, verse 9 to 13. Please rise. Thank you. You can find that on page 814 in your pew Bible. The holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. 
Once again, good morning to you all. Thank you for joining us for worship. It is my uh, privilege to introduce to you, if you do not already know him, uh, Bishop Chris Warner, who's the bishop of our diocese, the Diocese of the Mid-Atlantic. And I know that there are some of you in the room who have been a part of Redeemer for a while, and so you know what a bishop is. And when you saw Bishop Chris, you thought, okay, great, this is one of those Sundays in the year when the bishop comes to visit. There are others of you in the room who have never seen this strange, mysterious creature called a bishop before. (laughs) So here is one in the wild, right? (laughs) Um, And so I, I just want to tell a very brief story. When our family was in this season of life where we were trying to discern what was next, I was in seminary. We, we had the suspicion that pastoral ministry and maybe even church planting was in our future, and we were trying to figure out where we were called to be. One of the things that drew me and drew our family into the Anglican tradition was that we sensed a really robust, healthy answer to an age-old question, who is the pastor's pastor? And I knew at that time in my life, and actually I would say I know it even more now, (laughs) that I have not graduated from needing a pastor. No one ever does. And so part of what drew us into this Anglican tradition was not only the elegance and beauty of the liturgy, not only the centrality of the Lord's Supper for the worship of God's people, but actually the governance, the structure, having a bishop to shepherd and lead and guide, but also someone to submit to someone to hold me accountable, someone to provide oversight. You you and I both know we're living in a moment where people all around in our society are deconstructing the church, so much so because of the abuses that have come to light in so many churches because of a lack of governance, a lack of structure, a lack of accountability. And so part of what drew me into this was the presence of a pastor for pastors. Um, And so, Bishop Chris, thank you for being my pastor. Thank you for being um, our bishop, and thank you for coming to preach to us. Thank you, Dan. Yeah, I sure I, appreciate it. Can I say a very Please, brief prayer as you, as you begin? Yeah. Oh, gracious Father, thank you for your servant, Bishop Chris. Lord, I pray that you would speak through him to us this morning. Would you open our ears and our hearts and our minds to receive your word to us through your servant, Bishop Chris? In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dan. What a joy to be with you all this morning. Good morning to all of you. Um, I had the great pleasure last night of ordaining Ben Lansing, who's, everybody look back there. That's a, that's a deacon. He is definitely the newest bishop in the diocese, or excuse me. That's not a prophetic word, by the way. He's the newest deacon in the Diocese of the Mid-Atlantic, and I'm pretty sure he's also the newest deacon in the Anglican Church in North America, but I don't know. That changes fast uh, day by day, so uh, what a joy to be with you last night, Ben, um, and to welcome you into your ordination. Uh, I was consecrated bishop of the Diocese of the Mid-Atlantic in February, so I'm still kind of figuring out the whole thing. I, for over 20-some-odd years, was a pastor uh, down in the Charleston, South Carolina area. I'm married to Catherine. We've been married 30 years uh, as of about a week ago, and we're still figuring out how to do it. Um, she's better at it, I think, than I am, but she's a lot smarter than I am. So um, we have three children, Anna, Caroline, and Nathan, and we're very keen on them. They are a delight. They're all in their uh, mid to late 20s. We're very proud of them. Uh, we love them very much. 
Uh, the most important thing I can share with you about myself this morning is that uh, since the time I was a sophomore in college, uh, I have been walking with Jesus. Uh, he invited me to share his life. Uh, he rescued me out of a whole lot of confusion and lostness. And he has, since that time, so graciously and kindly uh, led me along through life. And so it's the greatest joy of my life to share with you about him this morning, because he's the one that is the most wonderful and beautiful person I know. And so the title of my sermon today is Dare to Share. It has two points, basically. The first is Dare to Share Life with Jesus. And dare to, the second being dare to share Jesus' life with others. So share Jesus' life and share Jesus' life with others. We're going to look at the gospel lesson from Matthew 9. Uh, that was on, I think, 814, if I heard that correctly, in the Pew Bible. Matthew 9, verses 9 through 13. We'll walk through the text a bit this morning and see what the Holy Spirit will take from the Word of God and do with us and for us today. We begin at verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and Jesus said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. Now, let's think about the context for a moment of the text so we can make sense of what's happening here. Jesus is heading down the road. He's in the town of Capernaum. It's a small town, about 1,500 people, a fishing village, basically, on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. It was Jesus' adopted home. It was his base of operations, and from there, he conducted his ministry throughout uh, Judea and Samaria and all through Israel. And so it's a small town, as I said, about 1,500 people. Um, some of you probably are from small towns. You know what small towns are like. I see some smiles already. In a town that size, people know each other, or at least they know about each other. You might not know every person but you know somebody who knows every person. And you certainly know somebody who's related to somebody else. Like you can pretty well cover every person pretty simply if you just sort of piece it out. So you may not be related to them, but one of your friends is related to them. Now, you do know who's who in those kind of towns. You know the characters. You know who the players are. You know, like, the people of influence. You know the people in power. You know the affluent. You know the ne'er-do-wells. You know the broken. You know the people with reputations, so you know the good guys, and you know the bad guys, you know the religious, and you know the irreligious, those who are moral and not moral, the sinners, and you know who the righteous are. Matthew is one of the bad guys. He's one of the people people talk about in the town. He's not among the righteous. He's irreligious, he's immoral, and he's a sinner because he's a tax collector, which means that what he's done is he has collaborated with the enemy, with the Roman oppressors, with the occupiers who have been brutal to the people of Israel. And he is collaborating with them, making money for them, and also lining his own pockets along the way. He's gotten very rich off the backs of the people in the town of Capernaum. So he's seen as a traitor. He's sleeping with the enemy, if you will. And you can bet that people didn't like Matthew. In fact, people probably despised him. You can also bet that Matthew knew who Jesus was because at this point in Jesus' ministry, the, he's the talk of the town. 
But he's not just the talk of the town. He's the talk of the region and of the nation. There are whispers about him everywhere. Could this be one of the prophets of old? Is this, could it be? Could he be the long-awaited Messiah we've been expecting and we've been praying for? Could it possibly be? People are amazed by his wisdom. They're amazed by, by the authority that he has. They've heard scribes yak, yak, yak. They sound a lot like Charlie Brown's teacher. Wah, 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 wah. But here is one who's speaking with authority as though he really knows the heart of God and can speak not just about God, but from God. They're amazed by the miracles. They're astonished. They're seeing things that just shouldn't be. They're seeing healings of people who shouldn't be healed. And they're seeing people whose lives have been infested by the demonic and by the dark being set free and restored to their homes and to their community. And Jesus has just come from healing a paralyzed man. He said to him, my son, be encouraged. Your sins have been forgiven. Take up your mat and go home. And the people are absolutely thunderstruck. There's cheers because they've seen the impossible. But then there's also loud anger. It's a Middle Eastern culture. They're very verbal people. They're very expressive generally. And the Pharisees are not happy with what's going on and what they're seeing. They say, wait a minute. Only God can forgive sins. Who do you think you are? And so there's cheers and there's angry outcry and it's a cacophony of noise. And Matthew sitting in his tax booth, not far from where the synagogue was and not far from the center of town, you can bet he hears what's going on. Even if he can't see it, he knows what's up. Something big has happened. And Jesus walks down the road. Can you envision him? We've got to let our minds get into the text of Scripture as he walks down the road. And there's Matthew at this point all alone in the booth waiting to do what he does, to take, to take, to take. And here comes that holy man. And, and his, his bead is on Matthew. It's clear to Matthew very quickly. He's not going around. He's coming right at him. And Jesus just stops right in front of Matthew. And he looks at him. Can you feel the pause of the Lord? What do you think's going on in Matthew? What do you think he's feeling? See, Jesus' eyes have a way of seeing through and seeing into. He's able to discern our carefully crafted scripts and the images that we portray to everyone else out there. He's able to see through to the very soul of a person. And here's Matthew, the despised, the rejected, the outcast, and here's Jesus, the Holy One, whom everybody is talking about, and Jesus is simply looking into Matthew's eyes, but I would say he's actually looking straight into Matthew's heart. Think Matthew felt dirty, guilty, ashamed, 
You think he was afraid in that moment? Do you think maybe there was also some desperation? These are the things the human heart rightly feels in the presence of the true holiness of God. The holiness of God has a way of exposing what's there as light shines into the crevices and the recesses. It exposes and brings out. You may not know this, but Matthew's name means gift of God in Hebrew. I wonder how many people do you think said to Matthew as he sat in that tax booth taking their money and getting rich along the way, Matthew, you're no gift of God. You're a disgrace. You're a blight. You're a curse. Not even God could look on you, Matthew. And yet there's Jesus standing there looking at Matthew. There's no condemnation. There's no shame. He simply said, follow me. Shift from where you are and follow me. Friends, this is what grace is like. It it meets us in the despised condition of our hearts, in the places we don't want anybody else to see, in the places that we try to hide and we wish weren't there, that we have entered into by our choices that others have done to us. And grace comes and meets us in the ugliness of that brokenness and says, follow me. There's no condemnation for you. There's no condemnation for you. It's just an invitation to share in Jesus' life. That's what follow me means. I want to tell you, God invites you also to share in Jesus' life. No matter where you've been or what you've done or what you bring in or the burden you've been carrying or the darkness that's been around you, the things you have done, the things that have been done to you, the things you don't want anybody else to see, you wish were not there, Jesus does not condemn but simply says, share my life, follow me. It's not a heavy burden. He sees, and in that exposure, he invites a shift of focus from yourself to him. The text says, Matthew rose, and he followed Jesus. And the root of the Greek word there for rose is the same word for resurrection, as in Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead. Matthew rose from a dead end life to share Jesus' powerful life. He rose from his dead-end existence apart from God, and he's now alive in a new way, with a new vibrancy. What does this new life cause Matthew to do next? That's the second point, right? First, he shares in Jesus' life. Then what? Well, he dared to share Jesus' life with others. Look at verse 10. As Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. What's the first thing Matthew does? He throws a party. Thank you. Whoever giggled, you're right. You're you're absolutely right. That was a spontaneous moment of joy. You get it. He threw a party. (laughs) 
invited Jesus and the, and the disciples, right, into his house. Like, he didn't put his church clothes on first. And he didn't put his church face on first. He just said, come in and, and let's have a meal. And Jesus said, absolutely, let's eat. I'm coming to your house. And who did he invite? He invited his people, his coworkers, his friends, the people that are in his life, in his sphere of influence to meet Jesus also. He didn't suddenly get uptight, judgmental. He didn't move into moralism. He didn't move into behavioralism. He shares Jesus. And that's what we're called to do too, to just share Jesus. Will you dare to share Jesus' life? And will you dare to share Jesus' life with others? Now, the story doesn't quite end there. So here's Jesus. He's, I don't know, he's in the dining room, reclining at the table. Maybe they're on the patio. Envision, you know, backyard barbecue, a little different in the Middle East, but like, get your mind in it. Get your heart in it. Let your imagination see it. There they are. You've got the disciples and Matthew, and now all of Matthew's people. Like, what was that like? How awkward was that? And how wonderful was that? Because you've got these people who would never have associated with each other in normal life. People on the opposite ends of political spectrums among the disciples. You've got some who grew up in the church. You've got others who are like working class, blue collar, fisherman types. Now you've got all these tax collectors and these sinners. How weird was that? How beautiful was that? That's the church. And they're not arguing over differences. They're focused on Jesus. And they're finding a unity in Jesus. Jesus is the one who's uniting all of them. He's the center of the event. And that's beautiful to see. You've got the outsiders. You've got the outcasts. You've got the unclean. You've got the unwelcomed. You've got the unwanted. You've got the unloved. And you've got the unreligious. And I know I made that word up. And Jesus is simply reclining at the table with them. He's sharing a meal, and it's good. He's not put off by their poor choices. He's not put off by their failings. He's not put off by their sin. And I want to tell you today, he's not put off by your poor choices. He's not put off by your failings, and he is not put off by your sin. He said, I have come to give my life. I have come to seek and to save those who are lost. I have come to give my life as a ransom. Now, he doesn't approve of sin. Of course he doesn't. He doesn't ignore it. He came to bear the poor choices. He came to bear the failures. He came to take the sin upon himself as he offered himself as a substitute for us on the cross. And he took the penalty that sin brings. The scripture is so clear that sin separates us from the holy God. And yet the holy God came and satisfied his own holiness and in love bore your sin and mine upon the cross. And God accepted the payment. He raised him from the dead. And he's alive. He's alive today. It's, it's different his aliveness, it's not like the person next to you can just reach out and pinch. Don't do it, by the way, or do it. They might be sleeping, wake them up. 
But he's alive in a way in which he comes to us through the scriptures and he comes through the preaching of where he comes to us as we meet at the table, as we lift up our praises. He comes to us as we go out and we serve those who are the least and who are in need. He meets us today because he is alive. And he offers you a new way of life, a new kind of life. It's a forever life, but it begins now. It's not for later. Yes, later is included, but it's a now life. It's a withness life. It's a together life. It's a sharing Jesus' life and then sharing Jesus' life with those who don't know him. The text says this in verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw this, They said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and with sinners? Like the Pharisees are indignant. They they can't stand it because they thought that being right with God, being righteous, meant impeccably following the same rules and traditions that they were following. God for them was not a loving father running down the road to throw his arms around his child who had wandered off. God for them was far more like a taskmaster. And and if he loved them, he loved them in a general kind of sense. More like the great Santini, a, a stern and harsh father, unpleasable and demanding. So Jesus speaks up in verse 12. He says, when he heard it, what they were saying to the disciples, Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. Now, let me just translate that for you. Healthy people don't need to go to a doctor. But those who know something is wrong with them will go get the treatment they need. So earlier this year, I was in the airport in Jacksonville, Florida. I just was sitting at the table. I reached over to pick up my bag to get something out and just something in my neck. I just, I, I, I pinched a nerve and I, I was, it was brutal. I have an old surfing injury from, from years ago. And it was like, I knew immediately, ow, that's painful, it's hard. And for a couple of, I don't know, weeks, like I just ignored it and hoped it would go away. Like any of you ever just kind of hope for the best? And pretty soon I knew, you know what, this is not going away. I got to go see a doctor. I knew I needed treatment. I went to a place where I could get treatment, and I've been receiving that treatment ever since. Jesus says, when you're sick, you go to a doctor. When you know something's wrong, you go to the one who can help you. And he says in verse 13, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And this is absolutely brilliant. You see the brilliance of Jesus because what he does is speaking to the Pharisees, he quotes the scripture to them, right? Jesus knows they're people of the word, they're people of the Old Testament. They're going to be discerning what he's doing against the word of God. That's what discernment is. We discern spiritual things by seeing if if we find them in the scripture. And so, Jesus knows that it's the word of God when heard that changes us. But here's the thing. If you don't let it change you and you don't let it in, it actually hardens you. And some of you have probably come out of churches, out of places where the word was espoused but not taken in in a transformational way and the place was just hard. Maybe your home was that way. Maybe you came from a background and, and there's not life in it. In fact, you come away from that feeling like you're, you can barely breathe. 
Jesus is trying to help the Pharisees see what's happening and to give them an opportunity to share in his life. He's saying to everybody gathered there and to us that the distinctions of sinners and the righteous are good and true and actual categories. They actually exist as categories. There are sinful people, there are righteous people, but what he's doing is he's flipping the script. Right? He's sending us into the upside down. He's altering the definitions. The Pharisees insist that the sinners become like them in order to be righteous and acceptable to God. And Jesus insists that sinners are just sinners. And to fail to see them as what they are, those who need to be saved, is the worst kind of sin of them all. See, you can go through the motions of religion, doing the sacrifices, doing the things that are called for, and if it's not affecting you on the inside, it doesn't matter a hoot. You see, if you fail to recognize along the way your own need for forgiveness from God, all religion will do is make you hard and make you critical. In Jesus' view, the truly healthy person is the one who is broken and humble and poor in spirit and comes to him recognizing their need for help. It's the sick who come to a doctor. Those who know their need of a savior come to Jesus. Those who know their need for their heart to be healed and to get his life will come to him. The one who dares to share in Jesus' life. And it's in sharing his life, that's what makes us righteous. The truly righteous person shares the life of Jesus. And then because of it, because you can't help but share what you love with others, then shares that life and gives it away to anybody who needs it. The irony, of course, here is that Matthew, the despised guy, the hated tax collector, right, the unclean one, by sharing Jesus' life, by responding to the offer of follow me, he becomes the truly righteous person in the story. And the effect of his life went way past that dinner party in which he invited his friends. Matthew dared to share the gospel with them, but he shares the gospel with us. We're reading Matthew's sharing Jesus still today. The effects of what he was willing to do have gone for several thousand years. It's still changing people. It's still inviting people to share Jesus' life. You know, we cannot help but share what we love. That's why I get all these cat videos <laughs> from certain people in my life. They cannot help but send me those cat videos. It's why a grandparent will show you 26 pictures of their grandchild that they've taken since the last time they showed you 26 new pictures of their grandchild because we can't help but share what we love with the people around us. Jesus' invitation from the love of his heart to you is come and share my life. Come and follow. Shift away from you and shift to him. And then dare to share his life with others because you love sharing good things and he's the greatest of them all. Let's pray.
But Lord, meet us today. Save us, Lord, from the burdens that have been put upon us. Take them off and invite us in. Let it be the real Jesus we meet with today. Call us, whether for the first time, Lord, or call us back. Or keep teaching us the depths of what it means to be yours. Lord, share your life with us. We just ask it as a simple prayer and then help us to share that life with others. For Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. To connect with our team or to learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. We look forward to knowing you. Go in peace.